If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 734. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook, the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, enrolling, free of charge, get the free class, 10 Myths of American History, and then purchase a class. If you're listening to this in November of 2022, I already have my Black Friday sales running. Use the code BLACKFRIDAY2022 and get 30% off every single class at McClanahan Academy. That includes the bundles, which are already discounted, and all the classes from expensive to inexpensive. You got them all 30% off. It's the only time I've done this all year. And it'll be the only time I do it. So get those 30% off deals. You're going to want the classes. You're going to need the classes. And I guarantee you're going to love the classes. So if you like the podcast, you'll like the classes. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on the little heart button under this video, the super thanks button if you're watching on YouTube. Or, of course, you can subscribe at anchor.fm. All kinds of great ways to support the show financially. You can also click on the shop tab if you want some cool stuff for Christmas. With my logo on it, if you've got that Brian McClanahan Show fan in your life, or if it's you, get the stuff for yourself. You've got cool stuff out there to do it. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Get that five-star review. Give it that text review. If you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment. It helps the algorithm. And send me those show requests. If you like the show and you want to hear something, send me that request. Put it in the YouTube comments, whatever you want. I do appreciate seeing and hearing what you want to hear, right? So it uh, keeps the show fresh. Now, today, of course, is an important day in American history. It's November 8th, 2022. The most important election of our lifetimes, uh, which surpasses the last election again, which was the most important election in our lifetimes. And I'm not certain if 2024 is not going to be the most important election in our lifetimes. It probably will be. And of course, make sure you go out and vote today, because if you don't vote, you won't be able to vote in the next election. That's under, I mean, that is without question going to happen. If you don't vote now, you will never be able to vote again. At least that's what I'm hearing. Anyways, I mean, so get out there and do it, right? As many times as you want, get out there and vote. Now, I want to talk about elections, and we'll see what happens. I'm going to talk about losers tomorrow because I, I think that something interesting is going to develop if the Republicans win the Congress, the Senate, and the House, and I'm going to make a prediction right now. I think they will. I think the Republicans walk away with no less than 52 Senate seats, and I'm going to predict 55. And I think they pick up about 40 seats in the House. So they're going to have a pretty substantial majority in the House and uh, at least a, you know 55 seats in the Senate, which will give them about a 10-seat advantage in the Senate. So that's a pretty substantial majority. Now, are they going to be able to do anything but block Biden? No, and in fact, that's the whole thing. I do predict that if Republicans win control of Congress, and I think they will, you will see Joe Biden impeached. It's going to happen. 
because impeachment now is going to be a political weapon used every single time the opposing parties in power in the Congress. The Republicans are going to impeach Joe Biden. They are going to nix the January 6th commission, and of course we know that that's going to probably wrap up anyways before the Republicans, if they do take the House, take the House. But they're going to try to undo all of that. They're going to go back and, and unravel everything that happened there. I also think that they're going to investigate COVID. I think that's going to happen. Someone like Rand Paul is really going to be uh, you know, hard on going after these things. So uh, there are going to be some things the Republicans do. Now, are the Republicans going to be able to do much else? No, and I'm actually going to talk about that this week on Thursday, how there's not really much difference between the Republicans and Democrats because of one very important thing. And I actually agree with the leftists on this, so you, you, you'll want to hear that. But today I want to talk about elections. And I want to talk about elections throughout American history. And we have this perception in American history that elections have always been these pure things, these, these fair things, until recently, until it when the 20th century when Republicans or Democrats, wherever it was, was trying to restrict access to elections, whether it was the Democrats in the South in the early 20th century or Republicans in the South in the late 20th century or 21st century. It's always these Southerners trying to do this stuff. They're always trying to restrict and make it to where it's hard for people to vote and they don't want certain people to vote and they're all about these things. And of course, then we have the perception on the other side that Democrats have always been about cheating, that conservatives have never wanted to cheat. There's never been an effort to cheat besides Democrats, dead people voting, voting twice. And look, we know throughout American history we've had a lot of election insecurity. We know we've had it in 2020. Uh, just use that election. We know there are things going on that weren't illegal, but maybe not that ethical. Uh, ballot harvesting is not an ethical thing, particularly when you're basically handing out $20 bills and saying, here, just sign down this way. We know that kind of stuff happens. Again, um, it's very hard to prove, but we know it happens. We know there's walking around cash given out to people to go vote, and you vote straight party, whatever it is, top down, and you just go through it. We know that happens, and then we know people to get their ballots, you know, they collect the ballots, and they go drop them off. So this is something that goes on. We also know throughout American history that you've had dead people voting. You've had a lot of voting irregularity. You've had situations, if you go back into the 19th century, where you've had voter intimidation. There's no greater example of voter intimidation than the Lincoln Republicans during the 1860s when you actually had soldiers at polling places you had people being forced to take oaths of allegiance to the United States before they could vote. Of course, at this time, there was no secret ballot, so you had Democrat ballots being replaced with Republican ballots. We know all this went on. We know people had to walk through uh, lines of soldiers with cross bayonets to go vote. We know that uh, there was massive fraud in the 1864 election, that soldiers were voting as many times as they could and wherever they wanted to, not even in their own districts, because, well, they could, and because the Republicans had to win. If they didn't win that election, the Democrats take power, well, then what happens? The war ends, and the South becomes independent. And so the Republican Party was not going to let that happen. We know that people voted twice, three times, four times. They'd maybe go in, vote, shave, come back and vote, because there wasn't any voter ID, and who cares? I mean, this stuff happened. So our modern fascination with voter and election security is something that, well, really hasn't been 
um, that well uh, enforced throughout American history. And I'm actually going to go all the way back to the colonial period and talk about this. Because this stuff is funny. right? So in the 18th century, in Virginia in particular, the candidate that won usually was the candidate that handed out the most rum. This is true. I mean, if you wanted to win, you had to hand out rum and snacks, and you had to have people come over and stay at your place. You had to make sure that you were there on election day. Voting was oral. You stood up and announced who you were going to vote for. It wasn't secret. And the people that were involved in the elections, particularly the candidates, would liquor people up to try to get them to vote one way or the other. If you think handing out goodies is something new, then you're mistaken. Democracy has always been insecure. It's always been about, well, I'm going to vote for the person that does X, Y, or Z for me. This is why people have, have long been suspicious of the democratic process. Because the democratic process produces a situation where you have who's going to hand out the most candy gets the votes. We see this all the time. And I've talked about it on this show. Republicans campaigning about giving out candy don't realize that the Democrats are going to give out more. And so Republicans uh, will often complain about elections because the Democrats are handing out more candy than they are. And so the Democrats are naturally going to get certain groups in the American electorate to vote for them because it's all about what kind of goodies they can hand out. Republicans and those that are on the other side that are worried about the candy coming out of their pocket right there paying for it, that's a whole other issue. I read an article the other day, well, only 40% of the American population now doesn't pay income tax. That was at 60% just a couple of years ago. Now it's 40%. Usually it hovers around 50%. And this was seen as a win. We've got 40% of the population not paying any income tax. That's a great thing because we had 60% just two years ago. That's a win for America. We got 60% of the population now paying income taxes. How is that a win? I mean, this is something, this is Orwellian. Again, we live in an Orwellian world. It's clown world. So 40%, only 60% of the population actually paying taxes and supporting the 40% that doesn't pay taxes is a win somehow. That's a great win for the United States. Whereas in the 19th century, 100% of the population didn't pay income tax. That was a real win. You want a real win? How about 100% doesn't pay income tax and we figure out another way for people to pay taxes? whether it's a national sales tax, something like that. Some type of tax, a consumption tax. Some type of thing that you know is based on what you consume, what you buy, is how much you pay in taxes. Now, I know the burden would fall back on small businesses, and that's a challenge for a lot of small businesses to try to collect the taxes, and it would be difficult. But on the other hand, you've got a, la a vast portion of the population that doesn't pay any income tax. Now, that doesn't mean they don't pay taxes. Of course they do. They pay taxes when they go out and fill up their car. They pay taxes when they go to the store and they buy stuff, usually state and local tax at that point. But they do pay a tax for gasoline tax. Maybe they don't have a car, so they don't actually pay any gasoline taxes. Maybe they pay a little tax if they have some type of cell phone or something else. But there could be a situation where they're not paying really any federal tax at all. They might be paying a little bit of state and local tax. But really, federal tax is non-existent. And in Virginia, if you pay taxes, this is, this is actually something interesting. If you pay taxes, you owned a house, you were required by law to vote. So if you were a freeholder and you had property, you were required by law to go vote. And they would generally get over 50% of the population involved in elections. 
But I want to talk about the elections and, and what people actually went through in the 18th century to get people to vote and to get people to vote their way. That's an important part to note. We know there's been voter fraud. We know, and, and look, they recognize it this time. There's voter fraud. We know it's been there throughout American history. It's very hard to prove at times. We know it happened in 1960, but again, unprovable. Probably happened in 2020, but again, unprovable in court. And that's all that really matters. You can be suspicious about it. You can even know it existed, but if you can't prove it in court, well, then it never really happened, at least according to the left. So we know these things go on. It's just proving it in court is, is very, very difficult. Well, in this particular case, you've got Virginia in the 18th century, a, uh, a democratic republic, uh, a state that, um, well, even, even before it became a state, but still had elections, uh, a colony or state that did elect a local legislature, and Virginia was much more democratic than Massachusetts, by the way. Election results were always contestable in whatever colony you were in, but Virginia could boast a much higher participation rate than Massachusetts in its democratic process. Uh, though South Carolina was even higher in uh, the book that I'm going to read from, Charles Sidnor's American Revolutionaries in the Making, makes the case that South Carolina, even though it was more democratic, was actually more repressive. And same thing with you know, places like Massachusetts. Virginia was pretty open. But I want to read some of this book. The, the uh, title of this chapter is Swilling the Planters with Bumbo. Right? So uh, the planters would come in to vote, and they'd have to go over long distances, rough roads, uh, one polling place. We didn't have multiple polling locations with boxes everywhere. And you, I mean, this was tough. It was actually hard to go vote. And people went and did it anyways. This is, I mean, look, I, I think you need to have an election day, not election month. We know that they've been voting for the Georgia governor, a gubernatorial race since 2019, which will be, you know, decided this time. So people have been voting for like three or four years now to get uh, Stacey Abrams uh, reelected to governor again uh, because she won in 2018. She's just the, uh, the uh, legitimate governor working outside of the governor's mansion, trying to make sure Georgia is a better place to live than what she says it is, which is the worst place to live in America. But regardless, uh, we know that uh, you could, people want, I mean, the left wants to have long-term voting, right? You can start voting way before the election. You can vote in all kinds of ways because that works for them. Uh, anyone that voted in the Pennsylvania senatorial election for John Fetterman before they saw his debate is probably kicking themselves. I saw a, a TV commercial. I was watching the uh, the World Series last week, and I saw a TV commercial with Fetterman, and he sounded great in that commercial. Why? Because they probably took about 25 different cuts on that commercial just so he could sound coherent for about 30 seconds. Because you know if you get him to a point where you can't edit it in and have it to where he's not scripted, Fetterman faces all kinds of auditory problems. Uh, and you it's understandable. The man had a stroke. There was another time in American history where a man had a stroke. William Crawford, he was running for president in 1824, had a stroke and was incapacitated. And guess what? He wasn't going to win because of that. People just said, well, look, he had a stroke. He's incapacitated. He, I mean, he did get some votes now, by the way. But it was thought that he really wasn't going to be a viable candidate at that point. And look, John Fetterman should focus on his health and not 
go to the Senate. I mean, in, in Pennsylvania voters, if you're listening to me in Pennsylvania, I know I have people in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania voters should reject John Fetterman just based on his health concerns. Whether you like Oz or not, and I've said I've been very critical about Oz. I thought he was a bad candidate. Uh, but whether you like Oz or not, he's not incapacitated because of a physical ailment. And it is going to affect him and what he can do and his cognitive powers. And uh, I mean, it's it's going to be a disaster for the United States Senate if someone like John Fetterman gets in. And of course, the, the Democrats, well, uh, the, uh, handicapped people should be able to get jobs just like John Fetterman. I mean, it's it's laughable. This is clown world. All right, so let me talk about this, this uh, book. Uh, the American Revolutionaries in the Making. And I want to read a little bit of this chapter, Swilling the Planters with Bumbo, because it really shows you what politics was like in the 18th century. It was rough. It was uh, not this, again, pure, ideological, you know, clean elections. In fact, when that was actually proposed... And I'm going to talk about that. It was outright rejected by the House of Burgesses. Nobody wanted a clean election without liquor and food. That's preposterous. Barbecues? Are you crazy? So let me read this. He says, Many of the candidates may have been perfectly circumspect in their pre-election behavior, but all of them, with hardly an exception, relied on the persuasive powers of food and drink dispensed to the voters with open-handed liberality. Theodoric Bland Jr. once wrote with apparent scorn that our friend Mr. Bannister has been very much engaged ever since the dissolution of the assembly in swelling the planters with bumbo. When he supplied the voters with liquor, Bannister was in good company. It included Washington, Jefferson, and John Marshall. So here you have uh, an election where Bannister is out there passing out casks of rum to those people who would go vote. You just you tap the cask, swill them up, and say, you know who gave me that rum? I did. Bannister. Vote for Bannister. Yeah, Bannister. And this is how it worked. And you know who else did this? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Marshall. This is how elections worked in Virginia in the 18th century. You provided rum or liquor, whiskey, rye, whatever it was. You gave them drink, and that drink would get them to vote for you. It's free, and that's a good thing. The favorite beverage was rum punch. Cookies and ginger cakes were often provided, and occasionally there was a barbecued bullock and several hogs. The most mag... Uh, Munificent as well as democratic kind of treatment was a public occasion, a sort of picnic, to which the freeholders in general were invited. George Washington paid the bills for another kind of treat in connection with his Fairfax County campaigns for a seat in the House of Burgesses. It consisted of a supper and ball on the night of the election, replete with fiddler, sundries, and such. On at least one occasion, he shared the cost of the ball with one or more persons, perhaps with the other successful candidates. For his memorandum of expenses closes with the words, by cash paid Captain Dalton for my part of ye expense at the election ball. So here's George Washington setting up a ball. Now, you could say, well, this is, this is fine because, you know, we have this now. We have election night balls when 
uh, the candidate, they have their supporters come in and they, they'll uh, pay for these things. But Washington was doing it with the knowledge that saying we're going to have this election night ball would have been there to persuade people to vote for him, right? We're paying to get you some food and drink. And won't that be great? A vote for Washington is a vote for your belly. Is <laughs> kind of how it worked. This is amazing stuff. People don't know these things, but we know that elections were a little crooked even then. A supper and ball of this kind was probably more exclusive than a picnic type of treat. Hospitality was often shown also to small groups, usually composed of important and influential men. Mumford describes a breakfast given the morning of the election of uh, by would-be for the principal freeholders. Worthy was the guest of honor, fine salt, shad, warm toast and butter, coffee, tea, or chocolate, with spirits for lacing the chocolate were set before the guests. And although it was said that we shall have no polling, well, no polling now, it was understood that all were for worthy and would-be, right? So no polling here. This is not about, it's not about persuading you, but all that showed up were going to vote for them because that's what the point was. It was a common practice for candidates to keep open house for the freeholders on their way to election. And it is a marvel where space was found for all to sleep. When Little Page heard that some of the voters who lived more than 25 miles from the courthouse were unwilling to ride so far in cold weather, he invited them to call at his house, which was about five miles from the courthouse. Some ten of them came and were hospitably entertained, though the entertainment was not more than was usual with him. Some of the company were pretty merry with liquor when they came to his home. That evening, they chiefly drank cider. Some of them drank dr like drums in the morning and went merry to the courthouse. So here he said, all right, look, hey, it's a long ways away. Why don't you come stay at my house? Five miles from the courthouse, sleep the night here. We'll get you some drink and we'll load you up in the morning too so you can go vote for me. Go vote for me tomorrow. Here, here's some liquor for you. I mean, this is how it worked. And we worry about election integrity today, which is a valid concern. But again, we had some really interesting episodes in the United States in the 18th century. Candidates frequently arranged for treats to be given in their names by someone else. Lieutenant Charles Smith managed the business for George Washington during a campaign in Frederick County in 1758. Two days after the election, which Washington had not been able to attend, Smith sent him receipts for itemized accounts that he had paid to five persons who had supplied refreshments for the voters. A year or two earlier in Elizabeth County, Elizabeth City County, Thomas Craighead sought to repay William Wager, a candidate for Burgess, for help he had once received in time of distress. He invited several people to Wager's house and out of his own purse entertained them with victuals and drink. He also had a share in treating all who were present at a muster of Captain Wager's militia company after which they drank Wager's health. So again, not uncommon for people to pay for drink or food or lodging Whatever it was to get people out to the post to vote. And this was all open. It was voice vote. It was not secret ballot. You went out and said, I'm going to vote for so-and-so. So everyone knew if they had provided the rum for you, you didn't vote for them, that's a problem next time. we got to watch that guy. Sidner says, on election day, the flow of liquor reached high tide. Douglas Southall Freeman calculated that during a July election day in Frederick County in the year 1758, George Washington supply, agents supplied 160 gallons to 391 voters and unnumbered hangers-on. 
This amounted to more than a quart and a half a voter. An itemized list of the refreshments included 28 gallons of rum, 50 gallons of rum punch, 34 gallons of wine, 46 gallons of beer, and 2 gallons of cider royal. During the close, close and bitter struggle between John Marshall and John Clopton for a seat in Congress in 1799, a barrel of whiskey with the head knocked in was on the courthouse green. So I wonder who supplied that. Well, of course, uh, the candidates, right? So all this liquor-fueled fun and fun and games for the candidates did not sit well with everyone. Not everyone liked this idea of buying voters with food and drink. Even though you could say that John Marshall, George Washington, these are the conservatives of Virginia. They're the ones who were out there liberally handing out the food and drink so that people would vote for them. Those who weren't considered conservative had some problems with it. There was a situation... Uh, this is an interesting one. Captain Robert Bernard was charged with intimidation as well as improper treating in his efforts to help Beverly Whiting win an election in Gloucester County. He attended a private muster of Captain Hayes's men and solicited the freeholders among them to vote for Whiting. At the next day, a muster of his own company, the said Bernard, brought 40 gallons of cider and 20 gallons of punch into the field and treated his men, soliciting them to vote for Mr. Whiting as they came into the field and promised one James Conquest to give him liquor if he would vote for Mr. Whiting, which Conquest, ref Conquest refused. And then Bernard said he shouldn't be welcome to drink, though he would not vote for him. That, he said, Bernard promised one Gale, a freeholder, to pay his fine, if he would stay from the election, which Gale accordingly did. The day of the election, the said Bernard treated several freeholders who said they would vote for Mr. Whiting to one Swills Ordinary, and that on, at the election, one of the freeholders said he was going to vote for Mr. Whiting because he had promised Captain Bernard to do so. But that he had rather give half a pistol than to do it. And other freeholders who were indebted to Colonel Whiting said that Captain Bernard told them that Cap Colonel Whiting would be angry with them if they voted against Mr. Whiting, which the said Bernard denied upon his oath before the committee. So the House of Burgesses compelled Bernard to acknowledge his offense, to ask the pardon of the House, and to pay certain fees, and it requested the city, I'm sorry, the governor to issue a writ for a new election in Gloucester County. So here's intimidation. You know, you've got the militia out here, you've got armed people, you're giving liquor, you need to vote. I'm going to give you this liquor, but you're going to vote for my guy. So again, there were some Virginians who thought this was corrupt, shady, underhanded, like James Madison. This is one funny part. Three years later, young James Madison feeling that the corrupting influence of spiritus liquors and other treats was inconsistent with the purity of moral and republican principles, and wishing to see the adoption of a more chaste mode of conducting elections in Virginia, determined by an example to introduce it. He found, however, that voters preferred free rum to the high ideals of a young reformer, that the old habits were too deeply rooted to be suddenly reformed. He was defeated by rivals who did not scruple to use all the means and influence familiar to the people. For many years to come, liquor had a large part in Virginia elections. In 1795, Jefferson wrote that he was in despair because the low practices of a candidate in Albemarle County were but too successful with the unthinking and who merchandised their votes for grog. In 1807, Nathaniel Beverly Tucker, writing from uh, Charlotte Courthouse, informed his father, St. George Tucker, quote, that in this part of the state, every decent man is striving to get a seat in the legislature. There are violent contests everywhere, 
that I have been to the great annoyance of old John Barleycorn, who suffers greatly in the fray. So here we have evidence, conclusive evidence, that people in Virginia did not want to have fair elections, uh, elections free from the scandal of food and drink. They really wanted it. This is what Virginians expected in the 18th century. Now, not everyone. You've got John uh, James Madison saying, well, this is a little bit shady. You've got the Tuckers saying the same thing. What's interesting about that, of course, again, is these are the people that tend to be the Democratic Republicans. The Federalists were all behind getting people liquor and food and, and sloshing them up so that they would vote for them. The Democratic Republicans were usually the ones opposed to it. In fact, James Madison was booted from his position because he refused to engage in these liquor-filled parties. He didn't like it very much. Um, and his dad had to go back and crawl back and try to get his son's job back. But regardless, we've got this really interesting election coming up. We know from historical evidence that uh, whatever goes on in 2020, really, or 2022, I should say, pales in comparison to some of the things that have been done over the years in America, particularly in the colonial period when it came to, you know, a little bit shady elections. Um, nothing like that is going to happen. Though, again, we could, people need to be wary of the results, and I think people are going to be interested to see how these results are counted. The mask has been pulled off the media but, uh, and, and how they cover up for the Democrats. We, people know this is happening now. And they're going to be more watchful and vigilant about what happens in elections than at any time, I think, in American history. I think 2022 is going to show that. And again, my prediction is Republicans get 55 seats in the Senate and they pick up about 40 seats in the House. That's what I would think would happen. It could be more. And we're looking at historical uh, takeover at that point, right? The last time we had this was 1994, where you had Republicans just crush the Democrats and take over. Now, my word of caution to Republicans, if that happens... Joe Biden's going to triangulate. He's going to move to the right. He's going to start taking their agenda and making it his own because Joe Biden is all about power. He's going to learn from Bill Clinton. And if he does that, the Republicans are not going to be able to take credit for much, much of anything they do. They're going to be stuck trying to figure out, you know, block stuff coming out of the Senate and do these kind of things if the Senate stays Democratic. Okay, so these are big issues. We're going to talk more about them as we go uh, throughout the next couple of years. I do have a piece tomorrow that's going to be a lot of fun. It's about losers and what I think about the Republican Party and where the Republican Party goes from here if they win or lose the 2024 election. All right. See you for the next time for The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.